Hi, and thanks for tuning in to the Tales from Travellers podcast. I'm your host Greg, and I'm here to find some incredible stories about seeing the world, escaping comfort zones, hearing some tips and tricks about travelling and exploration from those who have or are continuously travelling the world. So whether that be a week, month, year or decade, I'm aiming to find out more about the obstacles that they overcame, the prep work that goes into planning such a trip, what it's like discovering new cultures and making new friends that could last a lifetime, whilst also hearing about the job that feeds the journey or the journey that feeds the job. And we're also looking to find out what makes someone want to step out into the great wide open. So let's start another episode of Tales from Travellers. So in this episode, I'm joined by a fellow gentleman who may not have expatriated himself, but he has seen plenty of airport queues and in-flight safety briefings. Thanks to his role as a creative director at an international web agency whose main focus was working with the private and independent school sector, you can now find him weaving brands as the brand weaver across the UK. So without further ado, Tim, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much, Mr. Greg, and what a flattering introduction that was. I do try my best. Uh, they, they don't call me the, the silver tongue, well, not the devil, that, that's too nice. <laughs> they don't call me the devil. <laughs> they don't call me the devil, no, but there's nothing else that seems to go with it. So, so Tim, uh, before we really dive in, as I mentioned, you've, you've got that kind of background as a creative director, you're, you're, you're the brand weaver. Um, could you just tell us a little bit of what you're doing now, and more importantly, where you're doing it from in the world? 100%. So as you mentioned, I am the owner, founder of the, the Brand Weaver Agency. Uh, we're a consultancy, strategy and brand design agency, ultimately helping those more rebellious kind of business owners to stand up and own their position in the market through awesome branding. And that's not like just a, a simple logo design, but genuinely going to the core of what they're all about and bringing that brand to the surface so it resonates with their market. Um, yeah, and I do that all from my, my wonderful home here in leafy Buckinghamshire. It's a, it's a wonderful place, if not a little bit damp this evening. Well, yes. Well, the, the, the wonderful thing I always tend to hear about England, I describe as either being an armpit in the summer or a wonderful uh, wet zone in the winter. So there's no winning. There is no winning. True. But um, I, I really like what you said there, that how it's more than just a logo. It's finding that identity. It's really understanding the core of who someone is. And I suppose a lot of that comes, a lot of that experience, shall I say, comes from your previous role working with um, independent schools from across the world, across the globe. And that's really quite interesting. We obviously, we worked in the same agency, a little bit of background on that. That's how I know, Tim. But um, you worked um, there for 13, 14 years, much longer than I did. Mm -hmm. And with that, and as, as we mentioned, you worked with a wealth of schools across the globe. One thing we're going to dive into quite heavily on this is how people tend to find these experiences where working or living internationally shape their lives. Would you say that working with these clients over the years helped influence your design, um, your designer mindset, shall we say? Yeah, so it, it's, it's an interesting one because when you think about design from visual aesthetics, I wouldn't necessarily say it influenced that. However, what it did do was really open my eyes and evolve and improve my approach to that kind of discovery about each and every client. You know, you, you really had to take on board a number of different cultural nuances, depending on where you were on the globe, to ensure that you were 
communicating in the right way to the right type of audience. And equally, you know, really educating yourself on what might be these horrible stereotypes that you would assume with a particular culture or a particular school that you're going to talk to, which couldn't be further from the truth. Um, so I think it, it really has been that aspect of not so much from visual side of things, but understanding the, the inner messaging and how they communicate with the client, which has been really impacted by my time and travel across the globe with this company or with that company. With that end as well, um, you mentioned how you kind of start viewing them and shaping them. Were there any, uh, let, let's start it back. What was the first country that you kind of were, were working with closely? What was the school and whereabouts were they in the world? Wow. Okay. I've got to think back. Vaguely. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know one of the big ones, which like kind of really went, well, you, you've got a cool job here is when I was put on a plane and off to Dubai. Um, you know, Dubai was never a place that I, I even entertained going as a holiday destination or, or, or wanted to travel to. But the fact that I was in a career in a position where I could go there and someone else was paying for it was, was phenomenal. But equally alongside that, you know, almost young, naive traveler, creative Tim was like, well, I've heard stories about Dubai and oh my goodness, you know, I can't do this. I've got to make sure I do that. And I, I don't want to say this and I've got to wear that. So there was a lot of kind of nervous energy just about the prospect of traveling for work because you haven't become accustomed to, again, those stereotypes and what genuinely is true and isn't true when it comes to travel. So I'd say, yeah, Dubai was the, the very first place that kind of springs to mind. And I mean, Dubai is always a fascinating um, topic that comes up whenever I speak with people who have been there or been just in general to the Middle East and quite young new cities and countries, um, really, especially for ho the holiday kind of market. Um, mm -hmm. And as you mentioned, people go go over there and they've got you know, preconceptions. I mean, there, there are always these places with holidays and different countries. But with Dubai going over there, you're unsure about what to wear, how to act, how to put yourself forward. How did you start taking in that culture and looking to represent it into your work how did you um how did you start absorbing it are you a man who does a lot of googling or did you spend a few more days there immersing yourself in the culture especially i suppose within the school and dubai itself yeah well there there are a couple of i suppose strings to that bow we're really lucky or we were really lucky when we got a new project that we would always be debriefed by a sales team or a project manager who gives you that little bit of background you're gonna meet the client ahead of jumping on a plane and being there and the majority of schools that we worked with were british international schools so you had the sympathetic british teacher who would almost give you the heads up a little bit of going or by the way, you might have heard this, but that's not true. Or you do want to be careful, or you do want to consider that. Um, but on the other side of things, getting out, you know, and really seizing the opportunity whilst you're out in these locations, even if it is a work trip, was so, so very important to me. Like I've been given this wonderful opportunity and I didn't want to squander it. And the additional bonus is when you go out there, you've got British teachers who love to see a friendly British face and be able to talk about, you know, I don't know, Marmite and getting your tea bags and, and silly things like that. And they're more than happy to take you out and about and show you the local area and even avoid some of those more touristy hotspots to show you a more true representation of the of the country or the city you might be visiting. I've, I've, I've got to ask, I always love this fascination. One thing I've recently picked up asking people is the, uh, the the British Isle of places you mentioned tea bags marmite 
Have you ever built up that relationship with a client before going abroad to the country where the work is? And they've gone, listen, bring me back some uh, Bisto gravy. Have you ever had any of those things? Yeah, not me personally, but a number of my team when I was uh, in the agency, they they had various requests. Like one one head of a school gave uh, one of my guys like a full shopping list because they were going up probably six weeks to eight weeks before Christmas. And there are a couple of things that, that it just wouldn't have felt like Christmas if they didn't have those bits in their cupboard wherever they were in the world. Oh. It was mad. I mean... For me, it's, it's always the gravy that, that comes up in conversation. It's always gravy. I don't know why, but everyone seems to not be able to find gravy no matter where you are in the world. Really? Um, so as you mentioned, these, these are business trips. And that, you know, they are, that is what they are. They are short-term business trips. I mean, what, what was the longest period you were kind of away from, say, the UK on one of these trips? What was the longest period and where? Um, it would have been in, in the UAE again, actually. Um, oh, actually, you know, UAE and Asia, because we kind of did a bit in the UAE and then moved on to Asia. I wonder if we came back to the UAE as well. But that that was a good two-weeker that we were away for. And by the time you've taken into account kind of travel time, actually a- adjusting to a time zone, shooting, traveling again, adjusting again, having a weekend in between. Yeah, it was, it was a pretty intense two weeks, to be honest. That, that's quite intense. That's... At times, I can imagine that being quite as taxing, if not more, to someone just looking going on a backpacking trip. Because not only do you have the logistics behind of you getting there, doing your bits and bobs, but you've also got to make sure that you're doing doing your work effectively. So yeah, with this trip from the UAE going further east and then potentially coming back to the UAE, um, I know it might be diving back into the older memory bank, but um, how, how did you find planning your trip and versus how it panned out. I, I always love a good uh, project management story about a trip. 100%. And I think, you know, that trip I was really lucky to do with a freelance photographer who is just as anal as I am about planning and preparation. Um, if if we were not fully planned in terms of like flights, transport to um, airports, transport from airport to hotel to school, what time we leave school, when we need to be at the airport, it would have made the whole experience so much more stressful. So it was about having an itinerary nailed down because equally that's what the clients expect from you. And they're there to help you out at that end. We'd always ask for them to, you know, arrange for the hotel because they know where the best one would be in location to the school or who to travel with. So you need to have that really solid itinerary so it goes smoothly and the client knows when you're going to arrive, what time you're leaving. And amongst all of that as well, depending on what flight time you've got, if you've got to be at the airport three hours before that and you're still going to be shooting on the same day, like what is kind of the very latest you could be leaving the school, having achieved what you set out to do, capturing various photographs, packed up in a cab and off to the airport before you really start to sweat. Because again, that might then have an impact on the next client that you're seeing in the next country. And it's this kind of horrible domino effect that should one thing go wrong, you've wiped out your next client as well. Luckily, never happened. Um, Did have one client cancel a whole shoot because it rained. And um, this was in Abu Dhabi and it rained and I'm British as are you. And what they call rain is not what we call rain. It was literally a, a, 
minuscule puddle on the floor, but no, they said, no, shut it down. We're not going to shoot today because it's wet. It's risky. I was like, trust me, I've definitely photographed with my team in a lot worse conditions than this. And we're here in Abu Dhabi. We can't do anything else. Um, but lo and behold, nope, no shoot. So we had a day in the hotel doing some other work and then went home again. Oh, great. Okay. <laughs> so let, let, I'd like to dive a bit more to the logistics because especially with photography and and we'll come into this a little bit more, but the idea of the digital nomad and obviously designers, content creators, there's a, they, these are primarily the people who um, can live this digital nomad lifestyle nowadays. And especially since... Um, since the, the wonderful pandemic, which kind of almost changed the whole landscape of working remote. But um, before we go into that wonderful pandemic discussion, I, I, I need to pick your brains a little bit more about this two-week trip and just a bit more of the logistics on it. Because again, some people might be wanting to go away. Um, f- first question, in terms of cost, I know with work, a lot of things are covered by work and clients. Mm-hmm. But usually you'll, you'll carry a bit of pocket money. You'll have a little bit on the side. You'll have a little bit here and there to keep you going throughout those two weeks. In terms of crossing countries, you know, hopping on planes, trains, taxis, automobiles and the whole lot. Was it back then? Because I think this was before co- before COVID as well. Yeah, um, physical cash or debit credit card? Debit credit card. Yeah. Uh, did you do you ever have any of those moments where you like to take a little keepsake from any of your countries and clients kind of destinations? Oh yeah, there, there always would have been the occasional. Oh, I've got to get something. Like when I went over to Malaysia and places of like like that, I got just the most tackiest of t-shirts that I found in a market because you just had to. It kind of I was compelled to purchase one, and it was the equivalent of one pound fifty or something, but. God, I felt great when I was sporting it. <laughs> the, the the tacky t-shirts are the best, and what I mean, if you if you do see the brand, we've I will link his account. But uh, Tim is very much a fan of flat of the snapback cap. I've got to ask, did did you start collecting any of those? Because um, to me, Tim's trademark is the beard and the hat. So, were yeah, were there you know were there fridge magnets of hats for you? I've got to ask. <laughs> I think if if I were to do it again, then the snapbacks would be the way to go. Um, but I suppose this this look that you see now is probably an evolved version, like it's my Charizard version of my Pokemon, um, which I've I've built up and grown to over many many years. I spent the and in all fairness, now we talk about it. Um, when I went traveling with one particular team member, um, lovely woman, much shorter than I am. And we would have a fun game of kind of little and large. So we would shoot mini videos of me having a, a large version of something and passing it over to her. Sorry, me having a small version of something and passing it over to her and it, it looking massive in her hands. Like I'm 6'2", she's probably what, five foot-ish or, or, or less. Um, and so we would find the weirdest things like the smallest Tabasco bottle in the world versus the, the, the standard size. And so that became a little kind of what we try to find miniature versions of things that we could shoot the little and large videos with. Well, that's quite a nice little memory to have. And nowadays you'd kill it on TikTok or something like that. So I know we're before our time. Yeah, too, it was too soon. It was too soon. 
So, and obviously with, with these, um, the, the big thing that really kind of kicks in for a lot of people when they go on these train journeys, big trips, or they've got a very tight schedule like you had, um, you've got to fit in so much kind of research around the culture, but also crossing certain, you know, country, country lines that there are certain things that, you know, some countries are fine with, some aren't. How did you find fitting in kind of this cultural research um, if you were away from the client for such a kind of tightly packed trip? Uh, it's it. I, it wasn't as challenging as some people might think because you're not doing it in isolation. You're not doing it alone. You've developed a really good relationship with your client in advance of that planning. And so when it comes to shooting particular photographs, having access to a particular location, which might be outside of school, they're on your side to get that arranged. Like I remember shooting in Muscat and we had this wonderful opportunity to go into their wadis, which I've never been anywhere like before. And, and these wadis are just kind of like natural river beds, which have been carved out over years and years, like beautiful blue water, red brick or, you know, red soil up the walls. And it really is this magical Aladdin's kind of palace versus water world combination of visuals it, it, it's it's phenomenal i've never been anywhere like it but because of the client and their knowledge of the area and who to talk to it was very very simple and equally you know they just have more confidence because you're going to be on site or on a shoot with a client out there and they've kind of got your back in some cases you know i it was a story from one of my team members who had shot um had a shoot in i think it was a cathedral um but, oh no, in front of a cathedral nearby to the school because they'd done performances there, they had recitals there and so on. Um, and when the kids were there, they managed to capture the photographs, but shortly afterwards, um, security came out and they're like, oh, do you have your pass? Do you have the, you know, the, you're allowed to shoot here? And instead of having a pass, just these three women who were members of the school just really chirped up and ultimately bullied the security people away. Um, until the team had got their shots and off they went merrily. Um, so it worked out. Oh, wow. <laughs> Pays to be working for a private school abroad, I suppose, especially an English one. Um, yeah. And you, you kind of answered my question now. I was going to ask, going into these play, these countries and these work environments where, again, you're, you're there short term, did you have any more issues kind of um, with, you know, working? Because you, you pull out a very expensive looking camera and a setup. You know, even in the, well, especially in the UK, you get a lot of, you know, heads turning and wondering what the hell is going on. And, uh, you know, some of the um, photography and work that was done um, by you guys, um, not all of it was out of school. So there, there were going to be these moments, as you mentioned, where you might need um, a pass, a, you know, visa, paperwork. Some countries demand all, all tourists have their passport at all times. Did you ever have any problems or scares while out and about on a work trip? Oh, yeah. Yeah, especially from the photography side of things. And that it was it's pretty early on, you know, and it was the naive creative team coming out from the UK, like cutting their teeth, shooting photography internationally. Uh, and there are two that spring to mind. We had one where we were going out to the States um, and uh, I, I can't remember the, the, the exact conversation that went, but the photographer who was with me, um, obviously he was bringing his gear through check-in. It had all been checked and, and um the the security person said you know what are you doing here and his response was i'm taking photographs of children at which point it's like 
you really could have phrased that so much better, you know, to American yeah. airport security team members. And of course, we then expanded on, we work with a creative agency, we work with independent schools, this is a particular client we're going to see, and all went okay. But just that particular choice of phrasing was poorly selected at the time. And then the other time we were in, I think it was a different photographer then as well, um, we were out in the Bahamas and we'd never been to the Bahamas before. And I mean, that was a phenomenal opportunity again. Uh, we were just at, um, at the Windsor Resort, which is like a resort for the 1% of the top 1%. You know, Justin Timberlake and Will Smith have a recording studio there. Um, yeah, it's, it's a private golf course. It was insane. But we got there and they were like, do you have the paperwork for your equipment? It's in the photography equipment. And we were like, what What paperwork do you mean? We've got, you know, here's, here's the work with the client. They're like, no, you need this particular piece. Um, and we were like, oh, no, we don't. And they, it ended up being like, okay, well, you know, this is what you need to do to, to get through and, and, and sort it out. But that was a real scary moment where we were stuck in the airport thinking that we may have to leave all of our photography gear behind because of a slip up on one piece of paperwork that we weren't aware of. Um, very promptly after that trip, we were very aware of that piece of paperwork and now have it for these you know, particular cases. But it's almost those, those kind of episodes where you have to slip up in order to know about something because there are so many nuances with travel and regulations around equipment and what you can bring in and what you can't bring in and the paperwork you need that it's, it's bound to happen at some point and you just have to learn from it. Yeah, I mean, there's there's nothing more except you've, you've hit the nail on the head and it makes perfect sense. I mean, I've been on some film shoots, not as far, but it's, it's amazing how that one little bit of paperwork that can mean so much in one country can mean so little in another that in the UK, it's, you know, everyone carries a camera around nowadays. And mm. yeah, but again, as you meant, the minute you said America and something going wrong in the airport, yeah, I mean, understandable. Everyone I've spoken to, there's always some horror story um, when it comes to immigration in, in the States. So, yeah. Well, it's also just the, the security that they have there. You know, the first few times that you do it, you are genuinely terrified of these people, you know, because they have clearly been on the kind of the aggressive coaching course on how to do everything in a really quite scary fashion. But after a few more trips, you kind of, I, I saw it a little bit as pantomime, ultimately, that they were, they were playing into a role and it became more of an enjoyable element of the trip when you get to the American security. It's like, oh, we get to go through this again. This is wonderful. I'm just going to throw another question out of there then. Um, you mentioned about the airport security and obviously you've been to the UAE, you've been to the Middle East, obviously further east, which, not, not to point a spotlight at any kind of airport, but besides America, because everyone has their problems in America, what was the potentially the the easiest, the smoothest um, airport experience you've had, and which country was it? And then either side of the coin, which one besides America was the worst to go through? Just in terms of waiting in the line, maybe just not getting your bag, or having a smashed MacBook come back from mm. <laughs> off the handling. Luckily, never had that. Never lost any equipment. Never got anything smashed, which I'm so grateful for. Because again, that could have just been KO for a project or at least the, the shoot that you were doing. Smoothest one. Wow. Now, I didn't see, I don't know if it was an airport, but in all fairness, kind of like the smoothest traveling experience I've had, I think was, was going to the Netherlands. 
and just kind of the whole train system and getting in and out of the Netherlands was just so streamlined. It was phenomenal, you know, and from the security side of things as well. Um, in terms of like the worst experiences, I mean, they, they all, every time I travel, because I'm a bearded, burly gentleman who tends to wear a cap now these days, I nine times out of 10, I'm getting pulled aside and patted down. Um, yeah, not for, I, I honestly, I'm a very nice boy. Mummy raised me well, it's fine. But I think it's just kind of the look that I carry and that's fine by me. Um, so I think it's, there's never a massive kind of negative piece. As you say, we, we can't talk about America because we've already, you know, talked about it but it's just everyone always comes down with a i get a friendly patting down so yeah get to know the security people very well wherever i go well sooner or sooner enough they would have been like it's just him just let him through it's fine <laughs> yeah there, there was a few times actually they were like oh it's you i was like oh wow almost on first name basis with security people i mean maybe i need to cut them on the good camera. sign bad sign i mean <laughs> as long as you've been Who detained knows? long enough when I mean, we've all seen border force Oh, speaking of, have you? Did, I know there were some Australian cars. Did you ever go to Australia to do any of, any of the shoots with them? No, I never got out there. It was always because it was always like one client at a time. That mm. we never had a string of Australian clients where we could, you know, if you had three or four Australian clients who wanted to shoot at the same time, then financially it might be worth it. Yeah, but you've got to understand from the school perspective to stick a team of maybe two or three. British people on a plane, fly them over to shoot maybe only for a day or two, only to come back again. You can get some really good photographers out in Australia and still save a lot of money. So then what we would end up doing is like a, an early morning directing online remotely or even a late evening one where the team would dial in, you know, you'd have a laptop or a, an iPad or a tablet set up on a tripod and you'd remotely direct uh, a shoot with an Australian photographer which has worked and it also hasn't worked in the past as well. Yeah, I, I think we all learned from lockdown the, um, the limitations and um, how far we can stretch remote calling. And um, mm -hmm. I think that's going to bring me on kind of comfortably to my next point then, because obviously I've touched upon the pandemic and now we're going to dive into a little bit more. Before the pandemic really hit, there, there has always been this kind of strong desire from a lot of people who are going into the workforce looking for a job that offered travel, whether that be just hopping across the pond into Europe or going somewhere further like America. I've known a few people who've done that. And it's always a double-edged sword. And they kind of use it as an excuse to see the world at a lower cost and not at their expense, but then kind of quickly learn that it's it's not all sunshine and rainbows. You are there to work. Um, and it's that wonderful idea of romanticism versus the reality. So you going into this role, was the idea of a working travel holiday something you looked for going into work at, at this agency or as a designer? Or was it something that just naturally happened kind of as this business grew from national to international? Yeah, it, it was actually the latter. You know, when I wanted a career in design, I would have been really happy sat at a MacBook 10 hours a day designing for anyone and everyone just in the UK or even in the local town or city that I was in at the time. Um, and this idea of, you know, if you love to travel, get a job that will take you places wasn't even in my mind. And it, it almost dawned on me as my kind of expertise was increasing and my capabilities and seniority within the agency. I was like, oh, my goodness, I am in this incredible position that I never asked for, but 
what an amazing perk it is. So I, I was the luckiest guy that it just kind of evolved and happened to me. But then equally, my relationship with travel with work was very much a roller coaster one. Like at the beginning, it's an incredible perk. You get to see amazing places. You kind of get those tips and tricks to make sure you are making the most of your time in the evening or you kind of have a later flight back the next day so you've got time during the day before you jump on the plane. Um, but then as I became a father, then that kind of relationship with travel, it really did a 180 where, you know, those two-week trips, I was like, I, I can't do that anymore. I can't be away from my family for that long. It doesn't feel right. I don't like it. I did an 11-day stint when my son was relatively young and it was at that point where I went, yeah, this isn't the perk kind of thing anymore. Like, I need to balance this. This this is more work, get my job done, make sure everyone's happy. If I get to see a little bit of the world whilst I'm there, brilliant. But actually what's more important to me is coming home and being back with my family at that point. So yeah. Kudos. I mean, I think I think that's the best answer anyone can possibly give um, for, for a question like that because... Yeah, the, the the glamorous side of it does tend to change as your as your life needs and wants change, and as you mentioned, becoming mm -hmm. a father, that's probably more important than anything else. Um, I mean, I'm I'm on my way to that, and I I understand it, but not not beforehand, but now I do, and it's it's interesting how your mindset changes when a free holiday you think is on the books, but not a holiday. It's work. We are working, but yeah, it's, it's a sacrifice. Before becoming the the father that you are now. Was um and sticking with the agency, and getting this perk of going international travel, meeting clients, taking photos of amazing kind of locations, buildings, and seeing all these amazing things as you mentioned with Muscat, was there kind of this hunger for filling the passport, um kind of influencing the passion for work, or was the passion for work kind of influencing the passport filling? Yeah. Um... It's kind of, there's a bit of both. So as I, you know, when I spent my time as a creative director at the agency, I'd be lying if I didn't say I'm doing this trip because I want to go to this place, right? It, you're allowed to kind of throw your weight around at certain points, you know, the Bahamas, for example, like that there may have been other team members who could have done that, but I was not letting that one go, even until like the last six months of my employment at the agency. I was still trying to get a few more trips in there, just knowing I, I might not ever get to go again. Uh, I didn't, you know, but understandably, I respect the agency's choice to not send me on those ones because I was better off serving my time there. Uh, serving my time, like I say, it's a prison sentence. It really wasn't. I was just trying to help everyone out. Um, but yeah, there was that, that kind of like, I, I loved, I wanted, wanted to try and collect new places for a time. And that felt great. Um, over a while though, you know, if you build up a client base, if you do a good job, then naturally more people in that area or more clients in that area will call you back. So once you've been to that place, maybe two or three times, you start to go, nah, it's fine. We'll, we'll give it to someone else. But equally, I don't think it was the drive to go to a new location that made the work better. Um, I think it was just the additional perk, the additional ability to collect something because, it's not the location that makes the school great. It's the story and the kids in there and everything that makes that incredible. Um, the location is more of a, an icing, mm. I suppose. And I, I mean, I know from obviously being there, there are some incredible stories and backgrounds to some of these places, even from how they got founded, set up, and how they're just still going nowadays. Um, I've spoken to a couple of people in the past on, on, on the show who have been who've expatriated to, to Dubai, to the Middle East, 
and they, they find it quite interesting seeing a lot of these kind of English schools um, showing up. Is there any advice that you would offer any potential parents or people looking to move um, about what to look out for for your schools? Obviously, it, it would be foolish of me not to ask you about your input into what people could look for in the school community if they decide to move out there. Yeah, it, it, ooh, it's an interesting one. I mean, when you go out to the UAE, and if, if we look at Dubai specifically, as you say, it's a very new kind of location you know everything's shiny and glossy and chrome and glass um so you don't go out there expecting that same kind of heritage and history and warmth that you might have received at a british school you know especially in the private sector where a lot of our uk private schools dine out on the fact that they are hundreds and hundreds of years old you know with big harry potter-esque buildings because it's far from that when you get to dubai the thing that you really want to look out for is that community of parents in that school because it's it's going to be the parents that make it feel like home more because the school cannot you know as much as they might even bring you know a british school's name over to the uae and they they claim to be uh, i don't know i don't want to drop names but they claim to be you know the extension of that british school it is just a name it's not a feeling it's not an emotion it's more of a kind of a a financial marketing piece that they're doing there and they might bring some of the curriculum even some of the teachers might come out but at the end of the day it's a very different building it's a very different climate it's a very different culture but hopefully some of the people will make it feel more like home than the location would no, definitely and again the people friendships and those relationships are something that comes up quite frequently to people who move abroad that i've spoken to you working with so many of these kind of say international Eng english schools um in particular a lot of them and over i'd say the last couple of years in particular an, an abundance of um, english teachers from england are moving kind of to to the middle east they go into australia because naturally there is more money they have a better lifestyle what kind of um vibe did you get from the from the expats who moved to the uae further east before covid what kind of um how did you find their their mentality their lifestyle well i say not even just the uae but the ability to teach in an independent british school overseas doesn't well you didn't need to teach in an independent british school in the uk to get into one overseas you just had to be a british teacher so that could be, you know, any primary school and any school and you're, you know, it's, it's good because they're a British teacher and they're in. So I found a lot of teachers who were collecting the stamps on the passports, you know, going around these schools, doing a couple of years and then moving on. And these are obviously the younger teachers. And if you would bump into and they would have been there for longer than they thought because they found someone and settled down. But that the teaching was almost a vessel for them to travel for the younger generation and not too much as you say like post-covid but beforehand it was kind of like yep they're, they're touring the world and it's the career that's kind of facilitating that and they're lucky because they taught in a british school for 18 months 24 months and can now achieve that definitely and what about um parents i know occasionally that you do some focus groups with parents to get the, a bit more of an understanding about the community the school and just the general area that people are looking to fundamentally market the school with um 
But having these focus groups with the parents probably gave you a good insight into how they view everything and how they've settled into the community, especially if they, again, they are fellow expats. How, how, do, how again, did you find how these people have adapted to say, let's, let's focus on the UAE. How do you find these expats have settled into this, you know, to a lot of people, new, fresh, chromey world? It was really interesting <clears throat> because almost, you know, when you say like one of the first questions you would ask in a, in a focus group scenario is like, why did you choose this particular school? And in a lot of cases, it would be like, well, we're not going to be here for a long time. So we just wanted a school that did X, Y, and Z. So even that phrasing of like, well, we're not here for a long period of time, it says a lot that, you know, it's a transient community and we just wanted to deliver the best experience for our child at this point. So that kind of re reflected on what they're looking for. It was about opportunities, but something that felt enough like home, which when they did come back to the UK from whatever they were doing, the parents, whatever job they had, it was just continuing on, you know, it, it felt as seamless as possible. And it's like, it, their kids almost getting this opportunity of a gap year without it being a gap year. It's like, oh yeah, I studied in Dubai for two years or, or whatever it might be. But it never, at least to me, for the most part, it never felt like they were going, well, we're here for the long haul. You know, we're, we're migrating and we're, and we're staying here. Yeah. Again, a lot of people that I'm speaking to, when it comes to the Middle East, it's quite interesting how it... it it does feel like a stopgap for so many people. It's not, it's it, the, oddly enough for expats, you can find them settling into the States further East, but UAE mm. is always a case of, I'm, I'm here for now and we'll, we'll see what happens year by year. And again, yeah. the same thing that I've found speaking to people who have, you know, gone over to work in schools or just, you know, start a family, they always come home. But uh, well, on that, it's going to be interesting. Like I, it, it's not for me, but I am intrigued to see how kind of branding and design evolves out in the UAE because I'm I'm seeing a lot more people kind of migrate out there because of their design skills. Because mm. naturally, there is a, a richer clientele out there, you know, super yachts, mega hotels, incredible cars, you know, these incredible expensive experiences. And so a designer who's really good in the UK can be paid incredibly well out in the UAE just because they're now working with these mega brands that they maybe didn't have the opportunity to work with over here. So that's going to be interesting to monitor to see if that carries on or if that bubble's going to burst anytime soon. I mean, that, I mean you've, you've given me uh, two routes to go down for my next question for you, Tim. So I'm going to go down one that's kind of leading to this idea of potentially a bubble bursting. But we've talked, um, I mentioned coming onto this lockdown and how tens of millions of people since pandemic have to, have, can now take advantage of working remotely, doing a hybrid model, and as we've mentioned, these digital nomads, and this nomadic lifestyle where the freelance work funds their journey, and to some extent, funds it very well. <coughs> now, with that, do you see, as you mentioned, the bubble could burst, it might burst, we'll have to keep an eye on it, but do you think this digital nomad, and especially for designers and content creators, do you think it's in, impacting the talent pool of the of the say the UK native designers that some agencies similar to where we worked could be affecting. Do you think a lot of the higher end designers could be deciding to fly away, or do you think plenty are staying here? Yeah, I think if we kind of split that into two perspectives, you've got the the agency owner who is looking to recruit talent 
and then the actual talent themselves, they're two very different perspectives. So from the agency owner side of things, if you're stuck in the ways of like, my creatives have to be in the office because we get the best out of them that way when they're collaborating together face-to-face, not via a screen, then you are ultimately limiting your talent pool to as far as people are willing to commute, which these days really isn't very far, maybe 45 minutes, 50 minutes at a maximum. And depending on where your agency is based, that can be really, really limiting. And then you get into you know, factors like, well, we have to pay them more to encourage them to our agency versus the other one. Whereas if you embrace the, okay, I'm going to get my designers from anywhere, you're actually doubling down because you expand your net globally. You can you know, start to access the best talent wherever they might be. But equally, you're getting more satisfied creatives because you know, I, I can speak for myself and a few people that we know, but as a creative, you've always got that itch where you want to explore, you want to dabble, you want to discover and be that through travel or other things that you want to try. Like musically, I like to explore as well. Like having the ability to do that and then an employer who supports that, that that's win-win. You know, for the employer, you're getting this great talent who's, you know, wherever they might be, but they're fantastic and you've got them locked in. And for the employee and for the creative, you get an employee, uh, an employer who respects that and gives you the freedom to grow and explore, which can only better your creative work. Coming on to this, while you're talking about how expanding their creative work, expanding that talent pool, depending on where they may be based. Obviously, now you going independent as the brand weaver, you've do a lot of networking. You've obviously had a lot of you know current network with creators that we both know, and with this boom especially since the pandemic of people being able to do their own marketing yourself in particular do it do it quite well as the brand weaver i'm going to keep saying brand weaver but with social accounts linkedin all these various freelance websites where you can market yourselves and again combining this with this international allure for for designers have you found much more prominence and almost competition in a way from remote designers who are saying listen i can work with a uk client even though i'm based in thailand i'm based in south carolina but i'm marketing myself for a french clientele is there a lot of crossover and almost indiana jones level kind of red lines flying everywhere in the creative landscape um not in terms of direct competition I'm, i'm a firm believer that people will work with you if they know you like you and trust you And normally that ability to be trusted and known is more of a local kind of, at least same country based relationship. However, where you do see what you could classify as competition is competition from the likes of Fiverr or Freelancer, where you have designers who will create something for $5, five euros, you know, build a whole website for $50. Um, But naturally that's... I think that says more about the client and what they're looking for and where they are in their career and what their aspirations are for the business more so than the skill of the designer, if that makes sense. No, definitely. And I think then the, the other puddle is, you know, there might be kind of international developers or designers that I come, that I come up against, but they work on behalf of a UK agency. So the UK agency would be brought in, uh, and there'd be figureheads and, and several people who are UK based who, you know, I would be kind of trying to get the work from, you know, battling against. 
but they have a wider team and they then leverage a more international network to deliver that. So it's one step removed in that case. And this kind of brings me on the next point. We're talking about these larger scale kind of companies, agencies versus you. But um, would you say with that hand in hand, does that give you a certain charm in terms, you're a charming man anyway, but there, is there a kind of this wonderful sense of kind of that British charm, especially being that kind of independent, you're dealing with a one-on-one and yeah, do, do, you, do, you, do you exude that when, when you put yourself out there as opposed to being part of an agency, especially when you're looking for UK versus slightly further? Yeah, I th- it it all comes down to branding at the end of the day, and you know it is it's personal branding. So you know you mentioned earlier on you recognise me because of the beard and and the snapback, but that kind of the charming Britishness that you throw into the mix plus tattoos, it it all makes this wonderful mix which I can own and maybe not other creatives can do. And even entering into the networking scene, like seeing a guy like me and I, you know, I would go in dressed like I am now just with a hoodie on and cap and things versus the kind of more suited and booted people, you're going to stand out. And then when people start to talk to you or you actually start to talk to them and say, Oh, how, how's it going guys? You know, can I stand here and laugh awkwardly until you recognize me? Um, which is genuinely one of my opening kind of requests. It works really well. So you can steal that if you need to. Um, it all plays and it all makes you memorable. It's, it's leaning into some of those, cultural stereotypes, I suppose, in, in some ways that kind of keep you being remembered because people go, oh, I know that guy. He was he did this or he looked like that or he said this or he gave me that. So now I've got to ask you, you've mentioned about sometimes being recognized at airport security, people <laughs> recognizing you, you've got the brand, you've got the image, you've got the charm. And now I've got to ask, tying it back to what we were talking about um, not that long ago about kind of the allure of being in the Middle East. I wanted to come onto this later, but I feel like now's a great time. Was there ever a discussion with you and the family to potentially move abroad and, again, work with these gold-plated um, companies in the Middle East or settle down in Thailand to enjoy the sun or even just, you know, go, go to the States? Or is mm. is UK it? I, it, it? There's been discussions, but I think they're almost like these romantic ideas of oh you know we could go and set up on a farm out in america somewhere and live this incredible life but we are we're so lucky where we live literally in our our very you know our location the street that we live on the people we're surrounded by but my wife and i still have family members who are less than 30 minutes away we have parents we have sisters uh, we've got grandparents and we're just not at that point in our lives where we're we're willing to move away from all of that. We're very family based people. And especially with my kids, you know, one's nine, one's seven, to pull them away from their friendship group so early on in life feels wrong. You know, what I look forward to more is as they just get that little bit older, you know, over to the tens, the elevens, the twelves, is actually starting to enjoy those kind of international adventures that I had when I was with the agency with them, you know, beyond the Oh, let's go and stay in a static caravan or, you know, and even like not, not the Disneyland's, but actually go and get some more cultural experiences that they would genuinely enjoy at a younger age as well. So I think we're going to just keep it as, as holiday based exploring for now and not migrate. Oh, that, that, that's completely fair. That's completely fair. Did the, um, did the kids, um, obviously when you were doing all these travels, jet setting around, did they kind of get, did they understand like you were going to another country? Did they kind of, Daddy's going off to 
Muscat. Oh, wow, well, yeah, what, what wonderful this time of year were they like? I mean, did, did the children comprehend <laughs> they, it? They, they, geographically, they couldn't comprehend where I was going in the world. In, like, in all fairness, I couldn't comprehend where I was in the world a lot of the time, so I just hope that the plane would take me to the right place. Um, what they could comprehend was daddy would not be there for a set amount of days, or, you know, when I put them down to bed, daddy wouldn't be there in the morning, um, which sounds incredible. That sounds really sad. Like <laughs> yeah. Um, but also what they did know is that daddy would return and daddy would more than likely have really unhealthy sweets and treats that he picked up um, just out of sheer guilt when he was coming back and had to treat them, which wasn't great for anyone when I was traveling like maybe two or three times a month because that was no. a lot of sweets that came back. Well, it's like, seriously, seriously, stop it. The dentist is now costing us too much compared to these trips. Exactly. <laughs> um, but... Have, I mean, now that the children are getting older, do they ever look at, I don't know, do they look, I know it's not the wrong thing, I'll learn this when my child comes along, but when they see Dora the Explorer and maps come out, do they go, oh, d- daddy knows about Spain, daddy knows this, dad's been there. I mean, are they starting to kind of grasp that you've say, been around or has it not really come up too much now? <laughs> um, I not at the moment. And I think that their ability to travel has been really, really limited up to this point you know we took them abroad but it was just kind of like a package holiday pre-covid um but then my wife and i you know obviously with starting with the brand weaver and we've invested our finances in, in our house and things we've not had that opportunity to take them abroad so they experience and truly understand what traveling is again um but equally i think they're only just coming to the age where it might make memories and it might be something that means something to them Versus, you know, they went away and it was hot and there was a a swimming pool for a week or two weeks. So it's only recently, probably within even I'd say like the last six to eight months that my children are starting to talk about, I'd like to go to this place. Um, But it's it's not deeply thought through. It's not a case of going, oh, I want to go here because I saw Attenborough was over there, you know, admiring these particular animals. It's a case of, I know France is a country. I would like to go to France. Yes, um, Disneyland. I think Bristol and France were mentioned in the same sentence at one point when we were talking to the kids about where they wanted to go on holiday. So oh. it, it's not too much of a concern. No, right that's now. fine. That's fine. So w- would you would you encourage them as they get older to maybe take up that kind of passion for travel and seeing the world? One thing I've been saying quite a lot is because of social media, the world feels at times both massive and small at the same time. Everything can be seen through a a window that you've got in your hand, your, your screen, your wall, no matter what. And some people may not take full advantage of it. Would you encourage your children when they hit a good enough age, shall we say, to go traveling and just see the world or make the most of it? I think that really depends on the reasons that they'd want to do it. You know, I think you, you make a really valid point about everyone seeing the world through a lens and through a phone. And if their driver was just to like keeping up with the Joneses, you know, in order to say, I've done that as well. That doesn't feel like a good reason. You know, if they went, dad, I want to go traveling because, you know, there's this thing that I'd love to see. I've got a real passion for X and I know that this location has this. Then I think that's phenomenal because it encourages, it nurtures, it expands on whatever passions that they have. And or, or teaching again, you know, if they wanted to get into teaching and genuinely wanted to do something and travel with that, then phenomenal. 
So I'd, I'd, I'd never say no to them traveling, but I just hope that they have a really good reason for it versus just capturing some good pictures that will look great on the latest social media by the time they, they get to a certain age, whatever platform that is. I mean, that, that, that's probably the most mature dad answer I've heard. And I think it's fantastic. And I, I, I completely respect that. The, um, the amount of times you see people not taking in the sights and sounds of where they are because they're too busy holding their phone and coming up with a good hashtag is a shame, I think, nowadays. But maybe things will change. Yes, but talking about taking in the sights and sounds now, I want to I take a quick detour, if I may, into the past of Tim the musician, Tim the drummer, Tim the rock star. Um, very much a career almost built on the road. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's very much, and as fittingly enough, it's about building that brand, building that image. Um, would you say that kind of early start as, the, as a musician, you know, I'm assuming would be going on tour, made you really comfortable for this semi-nomadic lifestyle of never staying, staying on the spot career choice that you've had? Or do you think that's just a happy coincidence? No, I think just being a musician, I can thank my whole design career to being a musician. You know, I, I, I mentioned it to people before that my whole design career was based on, I managed to pirate Photoshop back in like you know, 2009. Um, Adobe, please don't come for me. I pay my license. I pay my subscription. Now. No one pays for the first Photoshop. Yeah. You know, let, let's be honest. That's <laughs> true. But equally, like, I mean, the traveling in a band was far less glamorous than the likes of what I did with the agency. You know, you're you're talking hostel, like the the dirtiest of hostels, or the the room behind the bar. You know, surrounded by your bandmates who are either snoring or vomiting into a shoe that they weren't meant to. Um, so I think just the the drive to never stay still was a case of because you never left that venue in a really good state, so you had to get out there pretty quickly um, versus the wonderful kind of four or five-star luxury that I experienced in the agency life. Uh, but yeah, it, it all, it set me up and if anything made me appreciate nicer travel so much more. Um, and, and I've done both. So I've obviously, I was never the guy who did the uh, the lads holidays, you know, going out to RP for with the lads and night clubbing. But I managed to see parts of the world with really good friends playing in a band before I then did it as work. So I've been able to see it from both sides of the of the spectrum. But one was on a much smaller budget. Yeah, much smaller. And I've got to ask at the agency, what is the now that you've mentioned it, what's the, what's the roughest trip that you had to take on the work trip? Everyone has their nightmare trip. One of my friends said he had, he got called out to to Amsterdam on Christmas Eve and he had to come back Boxing Day because a server went down somewhere. Um, no he quit shortly after that. I wonder why. He quit but, beforehand, correct? Yeah. Um, wow. High turnover of staff. But was there was there any rough trips? Obviously, you know, not saying you were put into them, but any that just naturally turned out to be just really rough and you like you came home. Gosh darn it! That was a nightmare. Oh, I I'm I'm just wondering if I managed to blank them out of my mind successfully because nothing's like immediately coming to to mind. I think just the more the the rougher ones were where you just don't give yourself enough time to adjust or enjoy the experience at all. Like I, there there are a fair few where it was jump on the plane, land, you're in the hotel. You try and sleep, but you can't because the time zone is completely different to what you were used to less than 24 hours ago. You stumble into the school, you do your job for the day, 
you're either jumping on the plane that evening or you're going straight back into the hotel and because you've got a really, really early flight the day afterwards. So whilst the location and the facilities and the hotel that you're in are very lovely, the experience is the rough bit because your mind is just going, where am I? What time is it? How how was I here? Now I'm here. I just don't get it anymore. And on the flip side of that, you mentioned taking not having those moments of taking in the time two-part question were there any moments where as you said you didn't give yourself the time to appreciate somewhere and you regret it and where what was the moment that you have really enjoyed stopping to smell the flowers so to speak i think it's much easier to think of the ones where you stop to smell the flowers um there was a a wonderful experience that I i i will remember forever when we were out in malaysia shooting and one evening the client said oh i'm going to take you to this lovely restaurant um it, it's beautiful you'll love it and so we got into the car drove down this rickety little highway to a place which is pretty much in the middle of a, a mini canyon with beautiful palm trees and lovely rich foliage and this kind of open shack of a restaurant and all the dishes with this kind of like neon orange plastic tupperware stuff and this wonderful woman who was endearingly or just known as Nana to anyone who went there came out with a parrot on her shoulder and served us like the most incredible food ever. And like those little pockets of, of moments like that, I, I'll never forget. And I, I went to New Orleans as well. Uh, and that was at a conference. So I was representing the agency. Uh, and New Orleans is quite possibly one of my favorite places ever because there's such a duality to the place. You've got the rich kind of cultural history, uh, you know, of the of the Parisian architecture and wonderful poetry and art going on in the streets. And then you step over into Bourbon Street and it's mad jazz and it's debauchery. And I just remember walking down the street, seeing this elderly woman who must have been mid eighties grinding up against this big hulk of a man who was probably early 20s and I was like well that's that's another memory for me because I'm not going to see that anywhere else <laughs> did you get any bees thrown out you though um, I've got to ask any, any what thrown out any sorry? beads I mean I don't know much about New Orleans. no, no, no. No, I, I missed the bead throwing. I might have to go back there. there. There we go. There's a regret. I didn't get the beads. There we go. I'm, I'll just go with that with you. But <laughs> let's um let's dive back. Like I've been kind of going on about this whole kind of chat. Many people focus so so much on the far, and as we mentioned, missing out certain things. A lot of people when they think about traveling forget the country they're in i'm guilty of it um uk england does have some incredible sites and sounds and locations and beautiful vistas worthy of the gram but um many tend to forget about the uk and you've obviously had the fortune of and this duality of the musician touring but also working with the agency with, a, with an abundance of scores i've seen several you know those are the schools here the buildings are fantastic the locations are stunning but um you've obviously been on your journeys for shoots meetings um did you find a new sense of appreciation for the uk countryside 100 percent, and i think it's that's something that i've really doubled down on to take the kids to at the moment and really show off as well like we we came back from scotland just uh last weekend and they got to experience edinburgh 
um, and some of the wonderful locks up there because it is it's stunning out there. There's no other place quite like it. But equally, I really love the the New Forest National Park. You know, it's kind of between Southampton and Bournemouth that area there because that's just rolling fields, horses. You you throw a brick and you're going to hit a horse. Don't go to the New Forest and throw bricks. Don't try and do that. It's just me saying that there's a lot of horses there. That's poor recommendation from the brand weaver. I don't endorse brick throwing at horses, okay? Um, But yeah, it's a lovely place. It's beautiful to camp there as well. It's just gorgeous again. And a place like no other, especially when you're kind of maybe in Bucks or you go to London a lot and you're surrounded by big concrete buildings to get out into the wide open spaces of the countryside um, is phenomenal. And it's going back to my homeland. I was, I was born and raised down in Devon. So, you know, being down by beaches, uh, rolling fields, tractors, you name it. I, I love it down there. The pace of life is so quiet to the point of you fall asleep accidentally. Yes, I, I, I recently experienced that myself going down to Cornwall in the summer. And yeah, it's, it, it's a whole other world. And again, reinvigorate my sense of wonder around the UK. And one thing I was guilty, no, I wasn't say guilty of, you, you do it, you, you stop and stare whilst I was um, going out on these work trips myself. Sometimes you just pull over on a lay-by because you think, that man, a bloody nice view, I'm just going to stop for a few minutes. Were there any moments with you and the team while you were out and about going to like, the, the, the far north, east, south, west of the UK? Like, let's just stop here for a second, guys, and appreciate you know the cliche that is this sunset. Yeah, there, there are a couple of beautiful moments. I think going back to uh, one of the Scottish clients, they they were just travelling between two of their campuses and it was just this beautiful winding road and there's this wonderful river that was going down beside it and it's kind of deep, rich kind of brickwork and little trees poking up and you look like, you, you felt like you were travelling on a film set. You were you know, kind of in the middle of Lord of the Rings. And so that was very much a, a pullover I think, yeah, I think the conversation was like, would you like to stop for a minute? I was like, yeah, we're just going to take a minute and let's enjoy this. Because especially when you're working, like you say, you do get caught up in that idea of like, right, we've got to rush on to the next deliverable. So it is always nice just to take a quick breath and realize how very fortunate you are in those situations to be able to experience something like that and commit it to the old memory bank. And I suppose with those as well, pulling in from your kind of time traveling around or mostly for work pretty much all for work now that you're got your you're, you're flying solo you are the brand weaver has do you think all these kind of trips and destinations have they are they, are, are they change your mentality about working and this kind of day-to-day do you, even though you're working remote most time at working from home do you feel like this nomadic lifestyle this digital nomad could be something that you can easily shift into even if not abroad, maybe just going up to Scotland for a period of time with the family, obviously, or without. Yeah, like massively. And and that has been conversations, you know, the flexibility that my new role and new position in life has given me is, you know, I'm very lucky my wife works in a school, so they get these wonderfully long summer holidays. And we've even been talking about it already that we'll go over to France and get a sheet for three weeks and I'll be able to enjoy a, a week's holiday, but then work from work from France for two weeks. And that's something I'm incredibly comfortable with as, as long as the Wi-Fi connection is decent. Um, that's great. And so I think it has that, that I've got no fear in terms of traveling or working from a different location, thanks to what I've experienced in the past. And I know that 
presented with an opportunity. And I think definitely if, thanks to what I've done in the past as well, should the opportunity to travel come up through the brand weaver, there's no trepidation, there's no fear or worry about it, whereas other agency owners might do because they've not had that experience. I'd just be like, right, we're treading the boards again. I know what we need to do. I know the process. So I can grab it with both hands, but potentially twist how we do it a little bit to give it a bit of brand weaver flair this time. No, definitely. And I'm going to ask you about your current work now, the the, the brands that have been weaved. Going through, obviously, some of your work, I can see there's such a, a kind of wide range of kind of styles. Obviously, that's what you do as a designer, and that's how you, you weave the brands. One of the things that I have uh, I really enjoyed of some of your recent work was with um, was the Veil, Veil Pale and the Skyhopper, the the, um, the brewery that you um, designed. The, um, the, the can design, uh, again, I will link this when, I, when, when the episode goes up. But again, it's this wonderful scenery. You've got this wonderful kind of autumn with the skyhopper and then this lovely kind of summer spring vista with the veil pale. Um, how did that design come about? Because it's, um, again, it, it makes you want to enjoy the beer whilst out and about, not driving, but, you know, out on the road. <laughs> you could be a passenger if yeah. you wanted to. Um, first off, thanks very much for the compliment. And um, yeah, the, the work with Vale has been really fantastic and it's been a great project and I continue to work with them like it it originated because I was in their tap room probably this time last year um enjoying their products potentially enjoying their products a little bit too much and I then ended up insulting the pump clips and labels in in the tap room little did I know that I was insulting 50% of the ownership of the brewery because it was one of the brothers um and they'd taken over the brewery three or four years ago, and they'd always said rebranding had been on the cards, but they never found anyone. And they asked if I knew anyone, and I went, yeah, me. And so the relationship was spawned. Um, but the whole idea of Vale Pale is that they're Vale Brewery. They're based in the Aylesbury Vale. They have this strong connection to the location. They use English hops. There is so much rich history based around Brill, which is the specific village they're in. There's a wonderful um, windmill, the great train robbery, the team hid out in a farmhouse just off of Brill. Um, Tolkien, the, is it the Prancing Pony that features in Lord of the Rings? Yes, or Hobbit? the Prancing Pony. Um, that Prancing Pony was based, supposedly based off a pub that was in Brill that Tolkien visited. And so these, these wonderful little stories that all connect Brill to a, a wider narrative was there for the taking. So the Veil vale Pale can that you talk about is an illustration of the Veil vale landscape. Um, and that was the one project I started with them on. Little did I know that there were two other um, cans in, in the works. And when we found out about this, the kind of the narrative continued. So you've got Veil vale Pale, which is the, the pale ale, which is kind of this, this middle of the road, quite a high percentage, but really naturally attached to the grounds even the colors on the clip are inspired by the landscape i color picked them from photos of the veil so you're trying to get as authentic as you possibly could and then you've got skyhopper which is another landscape that features the windmill found in brill and it's about being more kind of light and hoppy and a lower percentage so for those people who enjoy a bit of exercise and a beer skyhopper is the right one and then you've got their final one which is an english pilsner and the name is changing very soon um, it's called Wingman at the moment. Won't be called Wingman for much longer, thanks to Brewdog. Um, but that's a pilsner, and it's about enjoying um, the kind of enjoying camaraderie with your friends, and it's that, that kind of pint that you can have with your buddies around a, a 
in a pub garden. And what we established or what I suggested is if you were to then see these three pump clips side by side on a bar, that they should connect. So should you ever get the opportunity to see Vale in the flesh on, you know, and all three pumps um, being taken up by Vale, you'll see that the landscape flows from one to the other, which is a nice little addition to the design. I, mean, I, I really like them and they always caught my eye when I, when I saw you posting them. So, and, and again, wonderful story. And as you mentioned, so, so much history and heritage behind them and feels again about embracing kind of the country that it's from. Um, indeed, indeed. What about the, uh, much more to come from them as well? More more branding to come from them, which is exciting. Well, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing them then because that you know personally, I really enjoyed that one. I'd enjoy a good beer, and I love that. So I think that was really good. So thank you for that. I enjoyed it. So thank you for my enjoyment. And with the rest of your work as well, that I've you know as you would be as a talented designer, there is kind of this very this good sense of adaptability, and I've noticed in a few of them kind of um dating further back i've followed your work for a while is that there is this wonderful sense of kind of almost iconography from different places around the world you've got um just going down your list um you made one for the spartan shake spartan greek you've had one um standing tall in the shadows of giants again it kind of gives off this you know giants as well you kind of get these images of like norway and scandinavia those old mythological things would you say that some of this you know, years of going around the world and seeing these different sites, hearing these different stories has kind of influenced in a way some of the design work that you put out or even just where you're pulling in certain bits of iconography. I definitely say that there is an element that has helped. I mean, you know, branding at the end of the day is storytelling. It's telling a good story and being open and just having the opportunity to experience these places, learn the cultural differences, hear stories about them, even see some of the phenomenal locations that these stories took place in. It all comes into my own kind of personal tapestry of knowledge and idea bank that I can pull things from. And equally, that's kind of, you know, it, it's quite poetic that you start to think about these ideas. You know, you talk about standing um, tall in, in the shadows of giants. That was just kind of a, a passion piece that I put together, but it was that sense of, it felt creative. It felt like something really lovely just to have a play with. Mm. And where it comes from, you just you, it feels like you pluck it out of thin air half the time when something like that comes up. But if you spend time to think about it, you kind of go, oh yeah, I remember this thing and that's what inspired it. So I think it, it all goes into the, the Pinterest board of the yeah. brain um, to help you with future projects. The life you have led. Well, I've, but before I go on to my final few questions, I'm, for the budding designers out there who are looking to explore the world and obviously get these influences, obviously a lot of this design work, as you mentioned, comes from somewhere. And personally, I, I don't think everything can be learned in a classroom and you need to get out there and explore it. For those, not saying they're glued to their phones and their laptops, but how, any advice for those designers out there, how can they draw inspiration from the world around them, shall we say? You being out and about all over the world, what tips would you give them to um, store in them in the idea bank? It, it's a lot about being open. Um, it's kind of, you, you don't actively go out to be inspired, uh, but being open to the opportunity of like, oh, that looks really lovely, or that's a really interesting anecdote, or that's a really interesting story I want to know more about um, is really, really important. I, very recently, I found myself just finding this newfound love for traditional, um, you know, kind of print. 
So the old sign writers of the day, like seeing how these were created just with, you know, with a paintbrush and, and chalk was phenomenal. So now I'm looking around, I'm spotting on a building, just a faded piece of typography of, of maybe an old brewery or a newspaper advert. And there's something incredible about that that I can't help but go, I'm going to take a photo of that because you never know, I might need that. I might want to remember it. And in all fairness, like just like the desktop screen of Netflix these days, like with the various covers on Netflix, you can't help but be swiping through going, that looks pretty cool. That's a great image treatment or they've done that really well. Like I must have so many photos of my phone on my phone just of Netflix covers as I'm going through. So inspiration can come at you from anywhere. And I think just be open to it. As, as you say, you can't live your life through the phone. You can't try and find all your inspiration on that screen because that inspiration has come from beyond the screen to start with. So why don't you just go out there and try and find the original source versus the glossy version that someone's popped on a website somewhere. Amen. Perfect. So before we wrap up, Tim, because you've, you've given me such a, an amazing story. I think everything, you know, it's, it's an inspiring journey for those especially looking to start their career as a designer, whether that be somewhere rooted in an agency that could offer the potential for travel or even going on that digital nomad journey and taking the leap yourself. Um, it's been fantastic. So thank you so much for sharing. Very welcome. What, very, very welcome. Thank you. What I would like to ask you is a couple of little, little quick fire questions. So, and okay. one that I think will be fantastic to hear from you is I'm putting together a little traveler's playlist of all the people I've spoken to. Is there a song that was always on your playlist when you were waiting in the line or hopping on the plane? Oh, man. Like, there is a lot of music that I listen to. What one track was going on? What, was there, or is there one that always makes you think of the, the traveling times? I mean, it's a difficult question because I, I know you're, you're, you are a big fan of music. But, uh... Yeah. In in all fa- in all fairness, like I I always have a little trick, and I've heard other people do it as well. That when you go to a new country, you should save an album to listen to when you get to that country because you can associate that album with that country. And the first time I ever did that was um, what was it sounding the seventh trumpet by Avenged Sevenfold, which is a really really old album, by the way. Uh, <laughs> but that kind of like cemented this idea that you can associate music with discovery. So I think anything off sounding the seventh trumpet really brings back this idea of, of travel and discovery for me. Not that the music reflects that at all, because it's just dirty, grimy, mummy didn't love me kind of shouty, screamy stuff. But it's the idea behind it that really works for me. Yeah. Do, do you remember what country that was in at all? <laughs> that you listened to angry, shouty, grimy music? Hopefully somewhere that kind of vaguely resembled it. New Orleans. I maybe. think it was Portugal, actually. Oh. <laughs> well, that's a wonderful association for the Portuguese nation. <laughs> yeah, you watch. They'll have the death bat on the flag really soon. Was there anything that always had to be in your travel bag when you were going away on work trips? Besides, well, besides the laptop, guessing, you know, and the work. What yeah, had to be in your in your bag? Had to be in the bag. Um probably earbuds just kind of noise cancelling just shut out you know, on the plane but equally when you're in a hotel noisy stuff just anything that's going to shut out that sound and give you the best opportunity to go to sleep then you've got to be on that what uh, what item did you forget on one of your trips that caused you to have a panic attack 
Ooh. Did I ever forget anything? I mean, that's the first question. Did you forget anything? Yeah. Well, see, this comes back to me saying, like, you've got to be hyper-organized. You've got to be well-planned. Yeah. Um, I think that, that on occasion it would have been you forgot a tripod or a gel or something that was like, well, this is a minor inconvenience, but it's not going to ruin it. Like I, I've been, you know, the human tripod, um, the equivalent of holding a light, yes. nothing else, no other reference. <laughs> so, yeah, probably, yeah, just more camera equipment that we've, we've forgotten along the way. Okay. And from all your adventures, all your trips, for I'm going to split this into two. Where would you recommend the average person, I say the average person, the non the non-working person to go and visit and the second part where would you advise a fellow creative to go not just just to enjoy though mm-hmm. um i think fellow creative i'd come back to new orleans again because it is so richly diverse in such a small area and there's so much history throughout various generations and you can see that in the architecture and the signage and the typography you can just lose days just walking around and even looking in the shops and finding these wonderful little trinkets that are there. Um, But then as kind of a a family traveling or or someone who just wants to go on a holiday, I think if if I go back to the UAE, I think my favorite place there was was Muscat. Um, I think it is the most authentic. No, sorry, not authentic because they're all true to what they stand by, but the most cultural has the most history around it um and you can you don't feel like you're getting anything too varnished and too shiny there you're getting a a true experience of something that's that's very very different Mm. and final question tim for the night where is next on your bucket list where are you planning to jet set off to or drive to next I would love to take the kids on a bit of a of an American tour. Like I, I've become enamored with the whole idea of getting an RV and just driving for two or three weeks, stopping at different points. You know, seeing Route sixty six or the biggest elastic band ball or the largest chest of drawers in the world. So I think that's something I really want to try and do over the next couple of years. It's kind of a, a mini goal of mine. I can't blame you. I can't blame you. that. Is also on on my list as well. It's a very British thing to do to want to go see that, isn't it? Yeah, we're weird. Hey, that's the life. But again, Tim, thank you so much for being on the show and got happy travels for your next one. Thank you very much. I had a blast. It was awesome. Thanks for joining me today. If you enjoyed, please consider subscribing. We have a new episode out every week from new guests and even those from some returning to give us an update on their travels. If you'd like to be on the show to share your story, Whether it was in the past, one you're halfway through, or maybe one that's about to begin, you can drop me a message on Instagram at TalesFromTravelers. I'd love to hear your story and share it with those eager to listen and learn more about travelling. So until next time, happy travels.